I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance. This is Eric Arneson, and I'm joined today by Robert Bonomo, who is a writer. He writes novels and he blogs. He's a tarot reader, and he's a documentarian. He just recently released his uh, tarot documentary called The 21st, 21 Faces of God at the End of July. Um, hi, Robert. Thanks for joining us. How you doing? Great to be on the show. Oh, I'm doing great. It's super hot here, as I was just explaining to you, but... I think it's just going to make me dumber, which hopefully will make my questions better. <laughs> so, the uh, tell us a little bit about your documentary. Um, yeah, a few about uh, five or six years ago, I wrote a novel um, based on the structure of the tarot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called "Your Loving Complete." So, I really got well. This is actually more like eight years ago. So I really got into the structure of the Major Arcana. I used it as a narrative arc for the novel. Mm -hmm. And as I got deeper and deeper into the idea of the tarot as, as a story, as a journey, I just got deeper and deeper into it. And so there, I came to a point where I thought, should I write a book or should I make a documentary? And there are so many tarot books. And the truth is, I think people today are, are much more engaged with video. So I took a shot at it. I, and, you know, I had studied, I had been in film school many, many years ago at NYU. So I did spend a year in film school. So I thought, you know, I should get my money's worth. And let's see if I can make a documentary. But I wanted to make a documentary that really, you got the feel of each card, of the archetype embedded in them. And that's what I tried to transmit in, in the documentary, which is a little bit of background and then, then the arc. And I really wanted to, the viewer to get that feel of what happens when you go through the whole path of the uh, Major Arcana. Well, I have to say, uh, I think you did a good job. One of the things that I came away with, so like, so like you said, you start out with sort of a history and sort of a, a basic knowledge, and then you really get into the cards. And one of the things that I came away with, uh, with a lot of the cards, I got kind of a new insight on some things. Sometimes I walked away thinking, oh, geez, this is just a whole new set of symbols for me to pay attention to with this card. So, you know, for me, like I've got a lot of tarot experience, and it's always fascinating seeing how another tarot reader, another tarot person has uh, interpreted the cards and how they've internalized them. Cause I think that happens a lot. Like no yeah. two, no two tarot readers, no two tarot people are going to um, come back with exactly the same interpretation. You know, we'll have, we'll have broad similarities, but not really specific similarities. So sometimes, so for instance, and I, I think I, uh, the first time I responded to you after you sent me the link, I was like, Oh, I just got through watching the, section on the hierophant and there are no words and i was just sort of like what's going and you know i mean it it was super impressive and it was fascinating it was a fascinating switch because you were so you were so dialed in and precise for a few of the cards and then all of a sudden the hierophant is just sort of like i'm not going to tell you anything just have feelings <laughs> I, yeah i i liked that a lot you know and you you use that technique for a few other cards um and then some of them i think uh maybe it was the high priestess of the moon or something of that nature. You spend a lot of time with just the imagery. So the whole time I'm sort of thinking like, Oh no, it's going to be another one of those ones where 
I just have to like sit with my feelings. And then right near the end, you start talking about it. And I'm like, right. (laughs) (laughs) So there was, so the, the way that you used imagery created this great, like emotional roller coaster as we went through the, as you went through the major arcana, which fits so well with how the major, how the, how the tarot is supposed to be, is supposed to influence people. I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, you know, as readers, that's why, because we both do readings, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a feeling that comes. It's, it's something, it's hard to describe. It's, you know, when divination works, it doesn't always work. But oh, yeah. when the question is a real dilemma mm-hmm. and the cards begin to speak, I mean, it's scary sometimes. They're so powerful. So that's why I, I didn't think, I thought a documentary would actually be more useful than a book because I, you know, a lot of data and keywords and mm-hmm. you got to feel the cards. you got to feel them. You have to, it's like music. Oh, sure. You have to feel the music. Yeah. Yeah. And, I totally agree with you. And I really like that aspect of it. Um, particularly because you spend, I don't know, between five and 10 minutes on each card. Yeah. So it's possible to, you know, watch it all in one long sitting. I think I, I did it in like two nights, but it's possible to just watch the major arcana in one sitting and just go through the whole, you know, emotional ride or the whole symbolic ride, or it's possible to sort of break it up into little pieces. And I suppose one of the things that I was reminded of, you know, because when you read for other people, and even when you do like tarot contemplation, or or if you're mm-hmm. like meditating on an individual card or something, it's really rare that anybody takes the time to actually sit down and work through the entire fool's journey like you did. So sort of taking a step back and going on that journey and seeing not only like all of these cards that I had a familiar attachment to, but hearing your take on it was really fascinating. And I'm just wondering which one of those cards, like if you, if you could go back and be like, this card was the easiest one to interpret, which do you think was is your your easy card, your easy card to, to figure out? Ah, uh, the the Empress. The Empress. I mean, I, yeah, I I I hope it came across that. I mean, it was, and I'm a big fan of Kieslowski because uh-huh. I'm also a writer, and you know, in in Kieslowski for me, I think you know, all of us we have those sort of artists that really impact us when we're in our twenties. Mm-hmm. I think I'm big of that. And for me, he's just, you know, so I knew that I was going to end with that last scene in red. And oh, then, yeah. So, yeah, she really, she, the, the, the Empress really flowed, but she fought me in the editing. <laughs> when I was editing it, she was like fighting back. And yeah. I, like, I remember oh, I liked, I liked that aspect of the Empress. Like you, so for me, a lot of the times when I look at the Empress card, it's a sort of like a mother card or a nurturing card, but you really latched on to sort of the, more of the, um, kind of like feminine beauty aspect of it i think yeah um i liked i liked that uh and even so and i think i and oh so here's another thing that i was really fascinated by was your breaking up of the tarot into the triangle right where you right. had that was key i thought yeah so it was the the material the mental and the spiritual or that the, those are the three sides right. yeah exactly we come down the material we go through the psychic mm-hmm. and then we go back up the spiritual yeah, I liked that. I thought that was really fascinating. I was um there's a few cards in there that 
you know, I mean, it's interesting. Like for me, I guess, as I study tarot, there will be certain cards that I kind of like really dial in on and I spend a lot of time with, but I don't always go back and like reintegrate it into the whole fool's path, which I think is really important. And your documentary has inspired me to go back and do. Um, oh, so are there, were there cards like, so that, so if the Empress was the easiest, what was the hardest? Well, I had a lot of trouble with the fool. <laughs> Okay, that's good. because, and and here's what happened. I did the first five sections. So there are first, there's an introduction. Then I go into the history. Oh, mm-hmm. and history. I had well, yeah. But you, you mentioned the cards, so I did the history, then archetypes, duality, and then the structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I got stuck, and I got stuck for a couple months. On the floor. and finally, I oh my god, I didn't know what to do. So I was I had I was reading Emma Young's book on the Grail. Uh huh. And I knew she was going to play a role. And then I saw a video by Lewis Hyde, who does a lot of work on the trickster. Uh huh. And then it hit me. I was the fool is a fusion of Parsifal, and also the Grail legend and the timing of when the the major arcana emerged. There's a nice timing element there. They come out pretty close. No, well, the the major arcana a few hundred years later, but still, it's yeah. that. It's the same part that of the moment. world. You you sort of uh, tied it together through the uh, Cathars and the Cathar heresy right. sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I found that to be really interesting, especially the timing of the Cathars and the Grail legend, because they were very contemporary. Very. I mean, it, the the Grail and, and the Cathars were extremely contemporary. Can you can you talk about the Cathars a little bit, just so our readers, or I guess listeners, sure. so our listeners can catch up and know who they are? Okay, yeah, this is this is a. Um, I'm sure that your listeners are familiar with Gnosticism. I would so, hope so. If not, then I'll just go drive to each one of their houses and slap them around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that. But you know, they can they can go to. But I'm sure they are. I don't think we have to. Yeah. So there was a now the tie back to the the Gnostics in Alexandria to the Cathars mm-hmm. is a little tenuous. Yeah. But the Cathars were basically a, a Gnostic sect that emerged in northern Italy in around. Oh, I think it's like the 10th, 11th century. They begin to emerge in northern Italy. And then mm-hmm. they expand through southern France mm-hmm. and become a very important force against the church. Now, these Gnostics, they basically deny the crucifixion. So they do not believe in a crucifixion of Christ or the glorification of Christ as a sacrifice. Okay. Christ for them is not a sacrifice, a debt being paid. It's it's a transcendent archetype. Which um, they and they had in, that in common with some of the uh, Alexandrian Gnostic beliefs, right? Like there, like was it? Yeah. There was a whole line there who was like, you know, Christ isn't. Christ, it didn't even matter if Christ was a physical person. Uh, Christ's right. Christ's experience is like a map for us to follow to to reach divinity or return to that ascendant state exactly now the gnostics um so they rejected the old testament the cathars i'm pretty sure Mm -hmm. that they completely rejected the old testament um it's interesting too they had um you could be a gnostic and then you could be a perfecti those were like kind of like the gnostic priests Mm -hmm. and they were both men and women oh now it's not clear exactly if the roles were identical but perfecti could be men or women Okay. They were against all sexual relations. They rejected the material world. Ah, uh, dualists. That's always, exactly. Yeah. That's why they always call them dualists. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
and I think you see that in my film. There's a lot of that duality. That's why the duality in, in the in the tarot is so key, and in the Cathars, it's it's really important. So the Perfecti actually had had no sexual relations, didn't eat meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they ate fish, but they didn't eat meat. And um, and so then the church. It's a long story, but basically there was the Albigensian Crusade that wiped them out. Hundreds of thousands were killed. Uh, you know the phrase, um, sort of, uh, kill them all, let God sort them out? Yeah. That comes from the Albigensian Crusade. I think I've heard actually, that before. Yeah. The yellow cross, the, the, remember in, in, the Nazis made Jews wear a, a yellow um, star of uh, David. Star of David. Yeah. That, the origin of that came from the Cathars who were obligated to wear a yellow cross to identify them as Cathars. So that's the origin of that. Um, and they were finally all wiped out. The la- Well, the last group were wiped out at Montsegur. Oh, my God. The dates, I'm kind of bad with dates, but we're talking about like 1235. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. 13th, 13th century, century, I think. Yeah. I think it was before they wiped out the Templars. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Before the Templars. Now, the Templars and the Cathar and the Albigensian Crusade stayed back. Yeah. They didn't enter into it. Good. Um, that was one good thing they did. Yeah. And uh, so... And, and I have a personal story that we all have our personal myths. Mm-hmm. Uh, my last name is Bonomo, which means good man. Mm-hmm. Now, the Cathars never called themselves Cathars. They called themselves Bonomi, good people. Oh, so you might have some Cathar relations back there somewhere. Well, I, I mean, I'd love to make something. I'd love to make something like that up. No. It would be a but, great, um, <laughs> a great personal mythical history. <laughs> but it, it is my personal myth. Yeah, and my family is Italian. And not only is my grandfather Bonomo, but my his wife, my my grandmother, was Bonomi, which is good good people. Hmm. And the Cathars were tradespeople. I think they were weavers, basically craftsmen. And my family kind of has that sort of uh, that craftsman type element to it. So it's just a personal myth. It's. I can't claim any Cathar heritage. Oh, that's cool, though. Uh, all right. And then, like, the Grail legend, um, I loved how you brought that into the Fool card, actually. I thought that was that was very inspired, so I'm glad that that occurred to you. And um, the Grail myth itself, like, so the I remember you, you really honed in on the part of the Grail myth where they don't they don't work on this as a group. They're like each knight has right. to go off on his own and find the grail on his own and have the quest on his own. Um, which if you, if anybody, you know, I'm sure almost everybody out there has read at least a little bit of the King Arthur stuff and a little bit of the grail legend, but each of the knights that goes off on the, on the quest has their own sort of trials and tribulations and all of them fail except for what Galahad, I think. Um, and all in their own interesting ways and some of them in horrible tragic ways and some of them sort of sad and some of them just sort of come back saying well I, I i'm too lazy to do this grail shit um so it's a it's a fascinating way to look at the fool's journey because like so much of the fool's journey is facing obstacles like first like obstacles within yourself and then obstacles within your own mind and then obstacles dealing with your interaction with sort of like the universe as a whole like there's there's a million yeah. places to stumble million a million roadblocks to come up with or, or 21 roadblocks to come up against yes <laughs> <laughs> um so i do i do want to give credit to stefan heller okay do you know stefan heller oh yeah 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 
I I adore Stefan Heller, and I learned lots about the tarot from him. And I would recommend folks who are maybe just beginning, you go to I think it's gnosis.org. And, yeah, uh, there's a set of tarot lectures. It's like twenty bucks. It's well worth it. Okay, he's an extremely knowledgeable man, and he gave me a lot of the ideas, especially about that triangle. Okay, that triangle. A lot of that came from his talks. Yeah, Stefan Heller. He's uh, he's the Gnostic uh, priest, right? Like he's yeah. Right. I actually just recently read one of his books. I thought it was pretty good. Um, so all right, well let's let's. Uh, I I jumped right into the major arcana stuff without kind of like going back and talking about like the history of tarot, which I thought you gave a really so. When you first contacted me and you sent me the link, I was totally ready. I, I don't have a whole lot of patience for YouTube videos sometimes, so I was totally ready to like start it and be like, if he starts off with ancient Egypt, I'm just turning this off. <laughs> and you started off with ancient, with it like a, there was like a, your I first did. image was ancient Egypt. And I was just like, I was so ready. And then you're like, tarot's not from ancient Egypt. I was like, oh, hold on a second. <laughs> so it was really great that you had this really, uh, intelligent. I thought it was a very intelligent, honest look at the origins of tarot, um, and that's something that you know across the occult world. It's I, th- I feel like it's getting a little bit better these days, but but our inability to appreciate the beauty of the past that we can actually you know point a finger at instead of just making right. making stuff up. Um, so I really really enjoyed that sort of look at it because you really you you laid the groundwork for saying like. I'm not going to go off into, you know, woo-woo land. Woo-woo land. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just want to say I made a real effort in this film mm-hmm. to stay away from woo-woo. Because yeah. the cards deserve better. They deserve better. They oh, really they do. They do. And I think, you know, you were, you were spot on when you kind of started – looking at like when they really started to blossom as part of the Western mystery tradition was in the 19th century. And that's really where, you know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of our modern take on, on the Western mystery tradition still, still is rooted in, in like 19th century thought. So there's like the, the psychological model, which you spend a lot of time talking about, I think is like perfect for tarot's symbolism. Um, so you you did spend a lot of time ta- uh, you you touched a lot on um Jung and the archetypes yes. and how they tie into tarot. Can you uh tell us a little bit about that did did Jung ever write about the tarot? You know, there are quotes of Jung about the tarot, but I could never verify them. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I didn't use them. There's some quote on the internet, but I've never been able to verify it. Um I don't, as far as I know, he didn't. Are you aware of any no, actual direct? I'm not. Um, <laughs> however, I'm not really widely read in Jung. I haven't read a ton of Jung's okay. stuff. I've read uh, some of the stuff he wrote about alchemy and some of the stuff. I've got a book called The Gnostic Jung that has a collection of, te- you know, because he had one of the mm-hmm. Gnostic Gospels. Um right. So I've read a lot of stuff related to him and a lot of stuff around him. And I've read a lot of Israel Rigardi. And Rigardi was yeah. mm-hmm. was pretty big on Jung. But uh, – and I have a friend who's a Jungian psychoanalyst. Really? <laughs> well, he's – or he's working. He's working towards it. He's a PhD student right now. Um, oh, okay. But I personally haven't read a lot of it. So I'm just wondering. Okay. But, but – and Jung um, – so Jung sort of came about – 
or like he he really started coming into his own and becoming um, well known a little bit after Waite and Smith uh, published the right. the tarot deck, like maybe like a decade or something. So so this concept of archetypal images and archetypal you know forms sort of existing in everybody uh, was something that the Golden Dawn people had already been mm-hmm. playing around with, even if they didn't have the right words for it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But we should go back um, because the idea of archetypes is really platonic. Yeah. So, and and Plato is really, you know, if you go into Plato, there, I mean, under Plato, there's Pythagoras. So when we just talk about idealist philosophy in general, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so, so I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that, you know, Jung discovered the archetypes. He, he, he identified them in a way. Right. And, prom- and put them in a psychological context that made it made it much easier because you know when you read Plato sometimes it's not so easy, but Young <laughs> yeah. put it in a, in, in a way that that you can understand them. No, not to I mean I love Plato and I think Plato is very readable. People should read Plato, but mm-hmm. sometimes Young made it a little bit more understandable. Yeah, um, well, I think it, it's I think sometimes it's when you read Plato you can see that some of it's almost like a stream of consciousness stuff. Like he doesn't totally know what the heck he's writing about, which is kind of why yeah. it makes it so difficult to get. And you see it like you totally can see it over and over again in the, in how Plato is reinterpreted and, and rediscovered and reworked through, you know, neoplatonists throughout the ages. Um, oh yeah. And I'm not sure. So do you think then that the archetypes, um, are a good fit or like, do you think that they are the same thing as like the forms? Uh, For me, they are. Yeah. I I mean, I see it as a continuation. Now I'm not a philosopher. So, uh, you know, a a serious philosopher could maybe give you a better answer, but in my, my feeling, Mm -hmm. and I've read a lot of young, I mean, basically everything. Um, I've read a lot of Plato. I've taken courses on Plato. So I see that connection. An idealist philosophy, obviously, Young. I mean, if you look at it's kind of interesting. If you look at Aristotle and Plato, and mm-hmm. you look at Young and Freud, <laughs> you know, you see you see that same dynamic going on and on. No. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Except I think it might be reversed, right? Because Young sort of his ideas grew out of Freud's, or or maybe mm-hmm. alongside Freud's, or a little later, you know. But Aristotle would be i think the freud equivalent and he was right and he was the student right you're right it's backwards he was the student and yeah 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 you're right yeah that's that's true um but you know i think academia loved loved freud i don't think they loved him so much anymore yeah and young was always considered a little bit too woo woo no absolutely And, (laughs) and young was never yeah, people have to understand that Young was never a scientist, mm-hmm. though he tried to be a scientist. But he was so smart that he knew the only way he could get his ideas into the mainstream was presenting them as psychology. Psychology is as woo-woo as astrology, and it's all based on astrology. If you really understand Freud and you understand astrology, all Freud did was lift this stuff up from, you know, Mars, the id. I mean, come on, you know? Yeah. The superego is sadder. I mean, it's clearly the connection is there. But Freud was smart, too. He's like, I'm not going to talk about astrology. 
young. Remember, the end of the 19th century, scientism was just at its peak, mm -hmm. worse than now. So they went anti-woo-woo, but Young was a mystic and a Gnostic, mm -hmm. the Red Book. And look how the Red Book, he waited. Young was brilliant. He waited to have that published to what, 2011? Oh, yeah. He made sure it was long after he was dead. And I know there was a note somewhere that said, wait 100 years or wait 90 years. Oh, yeah. And this stuff will, people will reach, well, they'll see it not, they won't call me a nut. And, and. Well, in a way, it's kind of a good gamble because if after he died, his ideas like faded into obscurity and nobody remembered him, then nobody would care when the Red Book was published. Exactly. But no, if true. he managed to stay influential and the Red Book comes out, then everybody has to stop and be like, oh, wait, we've been paying attention to this guy for so long. And now it turns out that everything <laughs> was weirder. Uh, it's almost like uh, it's almost like the experience we have with um, Newton and, you know. Yeah. Uh, people hate I, I well I mean I think that scientists are probably more they've come to terms with a little bit more now but when it was first revealed that Newton had written millions of words about alchemy you know and was obsessed <laughs> with like the structure of King Solomon's temple as like a you know metaphysical map of creation or whatever like and so I think, and I I haven't actually confirmed this in any of Newton's writings, but apparently for a while he was afraid to talk about gravity because he was like, all of the all of my science buddies are going to look at this and say that I'm proposing action at a distance, which is magic, which they will hate. <laughs> <laughs> and we still can't figure out gravity. <laughs> oh, I, I was just going to say, you know, uh, what about uh, black, you know, dark matter? And you know. oh man, I don't know, I. I don't want to, I don't want to make like wild claims about dark matter, but you know, when you hear it described and you hear it talked about like a form of matter that somehow influences everything like gravity, but can't interact with us. That's freaky. That's too freaky. I don't I, get it. I listened to a lecture from a, a NASA um, investigator or researcher, and he began about dark energy. And I love the way he began it. He said, you know, what you guys know, understand about dark energy is about, just about what I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, he was really honest. He's like, look, I, a dark it's a placeholder. I think dark energy and dark matter are placeholders mm -hmm. because there's a problem in the math. Eventually, yeah. I think hopefully it will come out. But it's 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 just a placeholder. I mean, it's it could be because yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I'm 50 years old. When in the 1980s, we if you read like popular physics, mm -hmm. everyone was like, "Oh, we're about you know the unified theory. We're almost there." And then then they find out that the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate, and everyone's like, "Uh oh, 92 percent <laughs> of what's out there, we know what the heck it is." You know, so. Yeah. I mean, I took uh, I studied physics in college in the 90s and um, I was getting, you know, I was focusing on particle physics and now or quantum physics or something. I don't know. It was that was 20 some years ago. But um, I go back and revisit it every once in a while now. And I'm like, shit, everything I studied in college is wrong now. Like, what the hell? <laughs> oh, wow. So you actually studied physics. So you yeah. understand this. Uh, yeah, it does seem I, like there's a lot of confusion in the physics world today. Isn't there? there is. And there has been for a while. Um, and there has been. I mean, actually, there always has been, you know, we we keep figuring some stuff out. It keeps being more confused in another way. Uh, the history of physics itself is really interesting to look into because you can see. I mean, 
it'll make you it'll make you realize that the next time some doofus says to you that science is a religion it's totally okay to just like walk away and be like okay this guy's too dumb to talk to <laughs> because you know i mean there's a scientism right like there are people who don't study science who just are going to trust in science or whatever but right. science itself like the like the real hardcore nerds who are down in the trenches doing the doing the math and doing the observations and doing all of the stuff they revel in their ignorance like they are like they want to find the edges of their own ignorance and push it and push it and push it until it breaks and you can see it so one of the, so uh einstein einstein's uh, specific relativity or maybe general relativity i can't remember which one is which but he broke newton's equations or he found places where newton's equations weren't working um right. and so we had to change them so even now like you learn newton's equations they're a great uh, they're a great, great way to like estimate stuff and see how things work and see how the calculus is important and, and all that kind of stuff. But then it turns out that if you're going too fast, something changes, things stretch in weird ways, time changes, space changes. So I think that you might be right. That I think that might be a good insight that like dark energy and dark matter might be something wrong in Newton's equations um even with the relativity stuff added in and again i might be completely off but it would be it wouldn't surprise me if in another 50 or 100 years we get another einstein coming through who's like oh wait it's not dark yeah. matter it's blah 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 and here's a one more variable that we stick in there and look it works now and i'm no expert on this at all but i'm oh, just you know i like to read i just like to read popular physics and I, I listened to a lecture from the Royal Society. I believe he, I believe he was Danish or Dutch mm -hmm. physicist talking about maybe the problem is our conception of gravity is wrong. And he, yeah. and his theory went, his weird theory went too far for me. I got lost, but mm -hmm. in one part of it that I understood, that was kind of his premise. So maybe that that could be, you know, at play. I, I think that could really could be the case. I, um, I try to, you know, so there's a great. Uh, YouTube series PBS Space Time. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I watch that all the time. I love watching great. that too. I'm lost, like through the whole thing. And then he gets, <laughs> he gets to the I'm end where he's lost. like, Oh, I had this this listener question, and he <laughs> says the question, and I'm like, Who the hell is listening to this? Are these like all just physics PhDs sitting in their living rooms with bongs and they're like, Oh dude, what if the star was like <laughs> Um So I mean most of the time I'm totally lost. Uh but uh, but it's but I love knowing that there are people who think that way and are working in that kind of stuff and figuring yeah. that kind of stuff out. Um, and it's humbling. Yeah. It's good for me because it really humbles me when I watch. It, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like one of the best things in life is finding out you don't know something. You yeah. know, reaching that that place where you're like, oh shit, here's a whole realm of stuff that I don't understand. And sometimes it's stuff that you'll never get to explore. And sometimes it's stuff that you'll never get to understand or have the opportunity to understand. But recognizing your own, recognizing the places that you have left to explore, I think is the most exciting. And the fact that your paradigms will change. Oh, absolutely. Because the first time is difficult. The first time mm -hmm. is rough. But when it all breaks... And then you kind of build the second one, but mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> it's temporary. Yeah. It's a placeholder. <laughs> and then when it breaks, you're not so heartbroken. You're like, all right, I was wrong. You know, whatever. Yeah. But as, as long as you're making progress, becoming more conscious, mm -hmm. it's all good.
Yeah, until you discover that you haven't been becoming more conscious, and that part breaks too. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! Now, now, now I'm going to jump out the window, man. You got to get level on to something. <laughs> um, but uh, well, let's let's tie this back around to tarot, right? Because that sort of path that you go on is is built into that that triangle model that you have, right? So, you know, working through exactly. the material stuff, like. That, and the tower, remember, in the oh, tower. Yeah. The tower, everything comes apart. What, what, how did you, how did you, how did, did that connect or not? I was just curious because that's a, that's a tough one, the tower there. So I used, I used the fight club. Yeah. I liked the, I liked the fight club. Yeah. Cause I mean, we do, we do have a couple of really great, so you use fight club a lot and you use the matrix a lot. And I think both of those are some really good movies um, that have entered popular consciousness in a way where we, you know, there's at least an awareness out there that things aren't what they seem and that you're not the only person who feels that way. Right. right. So, and I think those two movies really frame that well. So I, I loved your use of that. And I thought I hadn't even thought about using that for the tower. Uh, and I kind of feel like, all right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about my feelings about the tower. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, uh, I am going to be, I am going to reevaluate some of my interpretations of the major arcana after watching your movie. So there's, there is some stuff that I'm going to have to look at again, but I've always sort of looked at the tower and the hanged man as being closely related. So, yeah. so the hanged man, uh, which is number 12 is in my feeling or my interpretation is usually looked at as an initiatory experience and maybe like a major initiatory experience um, that you enter into voluntarily or willingly, or as like part of like a seeking quest where you're like, mm-hmm. I need this knowledge. I'm diving into this. Um, and I sort of always use as a, like probably the perfect, I don't know, archetypal or mythological example would be Odin hanging from Yggdrasil. So, um, oh, right. so, you know, like his whole thing is, uh, Odin goes on this quest for a long time where he knows that sometime in the future uh, everything's going to go to hell kind of literally and everything's going to be bad and he has to figure out how to stop it he has to figure out how to how to how to see it coming and predict it you know predict it and prevent it um, and one of the things that he does in his quest is he learns magic through hanging himself upside down from Yggdrasil for like nine days or something. And he dies, goes through the underworld, returns with knowledge of writing and magic. And so I always sort of look at the hanged man as sort of like the symbol of Odin, where the querent knows that there's something that they have to do. They know it's going to be difficult and it's an initiation that they enter into willingly. And then the tower, I look at as something very similar, but it's an initiation that you don't know you need that is thrust upon you. So it's sort of something that is not entirely in your control. So maybe if you're looking at that scene from the fight club from uh, Helena Bonham Carter's point of view, where she's like, holy shit, what the hell did I wander into? Holy shit, what the hell is going on? Holy shit, everything everything is changing all of a sudden. Um, It might be that she's experiencing the tower card more than um, Edward Norton is. Although he's had a experience of his own that in that in that scene too. Does that see what I'm saying? Yeah, and you know, I, I it's 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 great to talk to another because I just want to say, you know, my film is it's it's kind of it's personal in a sense. Oh right? yeah, yeah. 
if I had, you know, I was not that familiar. I, I mean, I know who Odin is and things, but I was not exactly familiar with that story. Mm -hmm. If I had known that story, I probably would have used it. But for me, mm -hmm. the hangman, it's, I think it's, it's so similar mm -hmm. that your it's the beginning of the initiation and what comes after is death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting that it fits so what kind of, it fits the card so well. Mm-hmm that myth you know yeah yeah i think um, it really does and i always i guess i also think like um you know having the hanged man followed by death um fits into that initiation map that is so common in in uh, mystery schools you know so many mystery schools include right. a symbolic death as part of initiation um but it's safe you know it's a safe symbolic death so it's still something that you're doing you know voluntarily it's still something that that you're, you know, entering into on your own, on your own free will. And then, um, once you've started, you know, the initiation is just the beginning of the transformation. So once you've started, the transformation takes on a life of its own and you kind of have some stuff just, you know, running away with you after that for a little while, which I think the tower is a great symbol for. Well, I just want question. When you saw the film, did you, did you see the relevance of, uh, uh, building seven and then the re reconstruction oh you know Cast i um <clears throat> i mean that, I, because I, build, I, building seven i show it collapsed three times mm -hmm. i go through the alchemic process okay. and then you see liberty tower that's liberty tower at the end oh so i did not know that i didn't know what liberty tower looked like <laughs> ah okay okay yeah because i try and i try and loop in the um that whole that whole thing of the towers collapsing, mm -hmm. two collapse and one rises. Yeah. So it's kind of like the alchemic idea of, of you know, we go in, you burn, mm -hmm. and then something new arises. But that's non-dual. It's not two towers, it's one. Yeah, actually, that is that is an interesting um, piece of symbolism because it, it fits, uh, you know, I mean, the, the alchemical symbolism itself, you know, the almost all alchemy involves like destroying things with fire, like breaking stuff right, down with fire mm -hmm. and then having something new come out of it. You know, the symbol of the Phoenix or, or the, and the uh, fight club did come out in 1998, I believe 1998, 99, the same time as the matrix. No, oh, that was so long ago. <laughs> Doesn't that make you feel I old know, sometimes? <laughs> oh my God. I know. I, you know, I used to show the matrix. I was a teacher in China at uh -huh. university and I would show the students, the matrix. And they're like, Oh, this is one of those really old movies. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's not Casablanca. <laughs> I know exactly. I'm like, Casablanca is old. This is not old. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, <clears throat> oh yeah. So, uh, all right. And then like you had the, so back to the material uh, leg, you have the the four, um, I guess I usually think of it as like the four authority figures, right? The, um, the two aspects of the female and the two aspects of the male. Yeah. So you've got, uh, what is it? Uh, High Priestess, Hierophant, Emperor, and Empress, but not in that order. I just did that out of order, but... Right, right, right. Um, I, I was wondering, so... I liked your take on it. So I, I find like a lot of those cards are actually some of the more difficult ones for me to interpret. Can you mm -hmm. sort of, all right, first of all, the, the correct order that they go in is, is uh, what is it? High priestess, empress, emperor, hierophant. So right. you have like the female spiritual authority, the female 
uh, secular authority, the male secular authority, and then the male spiritual authority. Yeah, you can see it on that on one level. But let me mm -hmm. let me let, let's just do one thing. Let me just run through those first eight cards. Okay. Real quickly. All right. The fool is now the title of the film is the twenty-one faces of God, not the twenty-two faces of God. Mm, yeah. And you know, why is that? Because the fool, and this is actually historical, the fool is not considered part of the major arcana. So when you mm -hmm. played when you played the actual game. The fool was kind of in between the pips and the major arcana. So the fool is us. Mm -hmm. He goes to the magician, who's the alchemist, and he, he gets broken up. No? Right. Dissolution. The first stage of alchemy into four parts. Two that are masculine and two that are feminine. The two, the two feminine parts, which would be the high priestess, which is the moon related to the the feminine knowing mm -hmm. that feminine kind of intuition and then the empress which is the outer feminine the, oh, the material oh yeah Earth. yeah those are the two feminine then on the masculine you get the emperor which is fire which is the active masculine and then you get the passive masculine and the hierophant, which is air, which is thinking. That's why in that part I use music. Got it. Because Got music it. is number and that's order. Then when they get to the lovers, those four are brought together. Mm -hmm. So the four become one. And then in the chariot, you get the fool gets on the chariot and he goes. Mm -hmm. So he's broken up. We're showing the four parts. Then he gets on the chariot and begins the psychic level. So that okay. that first part, I think, is very, very. It's it's very clear. I think that how that works. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so the the lover would would indicate the the union of the 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 opposites, like the right, the right. whole set of, of opposites. Before, before become they mm -hmm. become two, and then before they become two, and right. those two those are the two horses. The two, actually, the male and the female and the lovers become the two horses. Right, right. And then you interpret the horses as sort of the, um, the spiritual and the physical, or the, the, the need to remain in the material and the need to pursue like the divine side. Yeah. And and, and the chariot and this I'm I'm almost sure on. Now I'm, I'm not an academic or a historian of the cards, so I want to mm -hmm. make that clear. No, there are people who are. Yeah. But I think it's very clear that the chariot comes from Plato's allegory of the chariot. I think it's it's very clear um, that 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 is where the chariot comes. So that whole and and I got that actually from I, I was I was taking a I was taking a class on on the Republic mm -hmm. and the professor started to talk about that. I was like, oh my god, that's the chariot. And then I was listening to Joseph Campbell has at the end of one of his talks. He does a little rundown on the cards. I don't know if you've ever heard it. No. I can send it. I can send you the files. Fabulous. Okay. And he and he and he looks at the card. He'd never looked at the cards before. Mm -hmm. And he looks at it because this is obviously from Plato's allegory of the chariot, with the one horse that wants to go to heaven, the other horse that wants to go to hell, mm -hmm. or goes to earth, and you have to make that ride. But the gods get two immortal horses, so they just go around and around and around. And so I think that that that's pretty clear. I think mm -hmm. that the chariot comes from Plato's allegory of the chariot. Oh yeah, that that totally makes sense. I I'm again reminded of some stuff in mythology, like all over mythology in 
in pretty much all of the Western world, and even in Egypt, you have gods in chariots riding across the sky or riding yeah. through the world or doing all that sort of stuff. Sometimes it does make sense. Like one of the um, Norse goddesses, maybe Frigg, I don't remember, but her chariot is pulled by house cats. <laughs> she probably doesn't get anywhere. <laughs> house cats, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, all right, so let's skip ahead to the last leg the the ah, uh the celestials the yeah you like i love that you know the, some of my favorite cards are in there um some of the scariest cards like the tower you know is is in there the moon which um uh i there was something that i was waiting for you to address in the moon that i'm not sure you touched on as much as i usually do and i'm talking about it but i always look at the moon as representing uh, almost like the collective unconscious or sometimes yeah. the shadow, <clears throat> like in Jungian terms, where the moon is sort of having to come to, come to terms with the the dark part of you. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, but I, I, I think that's a great point. But I, I think you would see more of the shadow in the devil. Yeah, that could and be. In the moon card is when when you in Jungian terms, your shadow is something that you reject. Mm -hmm. That it's not you. It's it's part of you that is so dark that you can't accept it, so you project it. I always thought. Well, I guess maybe I got that wrong. I thought that part of the um, part of the Jungian path is to see the shadow and uh, accept it and integrate it. Is that? Right, right. But first, this is why, like, where's your shadow? Do you ever meet somebody and you really just detest them? Oh, it's yeah. It's just, like, immediate. I guess that has nine happened. Times out of, nine times out of ten, mm -hmm. what you're seeing is your shadow. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, there are obviously people who are you just obviously don't like for normal reasons. Mm -hmm. But there are some people, it's, like, strange. Like, why do I dislike this person so much? Because you see you yourself in there. And you got to yeah. go, oh, uh, expletive, you know. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell me don't tell me i mean that's happened to me a thousand times no 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 and then you go home and you're like oh my god that's when you see the shadow and they when you begin to integrate it in the individuation process that's more where i see the moon you're beginning to integrate that animal that weird goofy looking lobster mm -hmm. is becoming part of you it's kind of emerging and that would also be the the wild dog versus the tame dog. Right, right. Okay. right All right. right. That makes sense. Right. I like that. And the two towers in the back and you go through. Right. And she's dropping that dew on them, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the Hebrew stuff in the cards. You didn't really mention it in your documentary. I am not. I, I don't. I, I think that, that in the major arcana, mm -hmm. my personal feeling that was an enormous mistake of the Golden Dawn. Well, actually, there's this um, quote that I pulled out of uh, Arthur Edward Waite that I've tweeted a few times where he he actually said, like, if you're looking for somebody who thinks that attributing the Hebrew letters to the tarot cards is a good idea, it's not me. So even Waite wasn't big on it. <laughs> but there's still some really interesting Hebrew um, uh, integrated into the artwork that that he did, and oh yeah, definitely, one, definitely. One of them is in the moon card. the The dewdrops are the Hebrew letter Yod, which is 
the basically one of the names of God. It's a it's a right. it's like a divine symbol almost. Um, I don't totally know what it's supposed to mean, but uh, that's an interesting thing to think about. Um, all right, so I, I I'm gonna I have to, I'm gonna spend some time thinking about your interpretation of the moon. I think that makes a lot more sense than the way I was looking at it. Um, and then uh, next we have the star. Wait, the star comes before the moon. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, yeah. You go right after the tower. You get to the star, and then, mm -hmm. and then the moon. Yeah, and I enjoyed now the star. Oh, the yeah. star was probably the the most difficult after the fool. Mm -hmm. Probably the most difficult. I banged my head against many walls on that one. You know, the star <laughs> is possibly one of my favorite cards. Like I always feel good when I get the star in a reading. I always have an an interesting an interesting time interpreting it. But it is also so difficult to explain to people. Like, because in a way, the star. You know, I always sort of like try to define the star as something kind of like um divine inspiration or uh, there's no easy way to explain it but uh but i did like how you know you when you were talking about it the, the thing that i'm remembering the most i think um from the video is how at the end you're sort of like oh and that bird in the background on the tree mm. is the symbol of like the soul ascending or the soul ascending to heaven or to divinity, I suppose. And I, I liked that a lot. I was like, oh, you know, people usually ignore that, that bird. Um, so yeah, I could see why you would find the star difficult to explain. That's a, and, and in making this film, there are some cards that like the tower, I always had really pretty clear idea what the tower was, but the star yeah. was always a bit of an enigma for me. And, and she, I feel like she really opened up mm -hmm. cause I really worked hard on that. The idea then it's a very Gnostic card, mm -hmm. a very Gnostic card. You go from the seven and the eight, the eight pointed star mm -hmm. and the seven pointed star that comes from the Gnostic idea of, you know, the seven planet, the planets. And then the eight is always the Zodiac. Right. The celestial the sphere. Zodiac. Right. Yeah. It's the, the Ogdoad. Exactly. Yeah. And, and for example, Robert Place's book on this, I think he does a really good job of talking about uh, the Lady of the Apocalypse, how she's tied into this, because mm -hmm. that's definitely there. And then the Gnostic Sophia. And then mm -hmm. I found that really that quote from Irenaeus, which I, I kind of liked, where Sophia is not exactly John the Baptist, but a little bit. It's kind of like she snuck in there. And I love that because I look, I'm very Gnostic in my in my thinking. Mm hmm. And Gnosticism, I would say for me in the cards, the key the key elements I would put are the Grail, uh, Gnosticism, and alchemy. And I never, I did not understand alchemy. Um, mm -hmm. It took me a long time to 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 really connect to it. And once I did, it's. I mean, it, I would say that you know it's it's probably one of the best and clearest ways to look at the cards. You know, and to look at life ah. and to look at the cars. And now in the history section, I try because I didn't want to go woo woo, but I show a lot of alchemic images next to early images of the cars. And mm -hmm. I put the dates there. I think it, there's a clear influence. Whoever made the first um, or came out with, say, the uh, oh, what's the name of the uh, the first Italian deck, the uh, Visconti uh, deck. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they saw deck, some of that. 
they they were familiar with those alchemic images and and they're they're embed i don't want to say embedded but there at least there's an influence there oh yeah remember remember what young said about alchemy young loved the gnostics mm -hmm. he thought that that was you know that was the key i think cosmology for him but gnostic uh, cosmology is crazy you know the pleroma and all these people it makes you know for modern people it doesn't make a lot of sense oh man the archons and and modern the, yeah oh my god and the archons and then this archon and then they have 15 daughters and then you, you know it's just <laughs> it can get a little confusing yeah for sure <laughs> alchemy is gnosticism for the modern mind hmm that's what young said when he saw the bridge when young saw that bridge between gnosticism and alchemy and it's an important moment in his life because uh, you are you familiar with Marie Marie Louise von Franz who uh, worked with Young? No. Okay, so Young had well, just a quick story. So Young's married, but uh -huh. he had lots of girlfriends. And one of his one of his uh, what's her name? Oh, I can't remember his first lover's name. Um, so he had like a second wife. Mm -hmm. When Jung realized that he had to focus on alchemy, that's when Maria Louise von Franz moves into to his circle and he completely focuses on alchemy. Jung is convinced that the individuation process is the alchemic process. For oh. Jung, it's absolutely clear. And that's why I really bang the drum on, on Jung. Okay. And Joseph Campbell, because Joseph Campbell is really kind of a neo-Jungian a little bit. I know very much influenced by Jung, let's say. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot uh, there's a lot in here that I'm going to have to sort of like take away and spend some time with to kind of like integrate it into my own tarot practice. So this was really, really helpful to me. Um, not not just your I mean, the documentary was great and the documentary was totally like I got to sit and think about this for a while. But actually, like getting a chance to ask you these questions about it, I think has been really great. There's a lot of stuff to go back to. Um, but I think that's probably a good amount for our our listeners to digest yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, a little bit too much. <laughs> um, why don't you uh, tell them where they can find you on the internet or where they can find, um, and especially where they can find the movie. I mean, I'll totally, I'm going to link to it in the show notes so that people can, right. can see it for sure. But um, yeah, just let's let them know. Sure. If you go to YouTube and just put in the 21 faces of God, it should pop, it should pop up. You'll see my, uh, my YouTube channel and that's all there is on there. It's just, it's just the film. Okay. So there are two, the film, I have two parts. I have the long form version, which is two hours and what, 48 minutes. It's pretty long. Mm -hmm. And then I have the serialized version into 27 parts. Yeah. I watched the so serialized version and I thought that was pretty good because it gave you a chance to sort of like stop at logical points and think about things. And maybe Google some stuff, mm -hmm. you know, if you want to, hey, what is this? What is that? Yeah. So however, you know, if you're really brave and you want to, you know, Mm -hmm. Take a try. Try the long form. If you want the serialized versions, they're both there. They're both there. And if I could just ask folks, if they do enjoy it, if they could go to uh, Rotten Tomatoes and um, just Google the film, it'll come up on Rotten Tomatoes. And if they can show it some love there, that'd be great. That is a good idea. I will I will put a link to that in the show notes, too, so that they can they can vote for you quickly and easily. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. It was a, it was a, it was a pleasure to talk to you about this stuff and it was great to get to nerd out about tarot with um, somebody who's had tons of experience and a different take on stuff. So 
Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll send people your way and um, and we should keep in touch. Like maybe we can do a follow up after a while after you've had some more feedback from stuff. And so we'll uh, oh, that, have you on again. That'd be fantastic. All right. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. My Alchemical Bromance is sponsored by Miskatonic Books. Miskatonic Books is an online bookstore that focuses on rare, limited edition, and custom-made books of the highest quality. They specialize in books on the occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Hermeticism, and other topics of interest to you, our listeners. Check them out on the web at miskatonicbooks.com. I'm not going to